0: Before we start, just a warning that this episode of Untold Killing contains graphic descriptions of violence and adult themes, including issues of mental health and self-harm. Please listen with discretion. It was the 5th of August 1992, the day that Ed Vuliami, Penny Marshall, Ian Williams and their news crew entered Omarska and Trenopoli.
1: Maybe the most Tragic moment of, of this day and maybe even the, of the whole three-month period of Omarska was that even on the day when journalists discovered the camp, they took a group of 124 men. Many of them were from Kerater, taken to Omarska day before. So this group was taken out uh, on 5th August to a place called Hrastovo Glavice, up the mountains just south of Omarska,
2: on three buses and were taken off the buses in groups of three,
1: given a cigarette, tied together, and... They shot them above a natural small opening and a big cave below it. This opening was only big enough for three people at the time, so they had to kill them three by three.
2: And shoved down a crevice in the rock. So think about that. The people at the back of the bus were watching this happen to others for however many hours it takes to do that. This is how high the stakes are. The survivors sometimes say that Penny and Ian and I saved thousands of lives by getting the camp closed down. I can't make a judgment on that. It's too much for me to comprehend. However, I do wonder whether we were responsible for those 150 deaths. I mean, had we not forged away into the camp, would they have taken the 150 men out on the day we arrived?
0: I don't know. After the journalists found the camps, after the world reacted, it's not like it all just ended straight away. The detainees weren't just let go. The killings continued. So rather than a resolution, it was more the start of a long journey. Destination unknown. From message heard and remembering Srebrenica, this is untold killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic.
1: On the sixth in the morning, the the rumor or the news was spread that they will uh, empty Omarska. They will they will deport us all, and and all these lists made more and more sense to us. And somehow the news was spread that the long one is, is group to Manyacha, the other one was group for Ternopoe. I will never forget in the morning, this was supposed to be my last meal, in you know, Marska, and I, I, while walking out and, and looking in the, into the sun, I, I spontaneously started crying. I was really completely uh, emotional because I really realized This is it, but it was not it. And I I will never forget, there was a guard looking at me and he was laughing and and, and making kind of stupid joke to the others. He said, hey, look, some of them are even crying. They really don't want to leave us, ha, ha, ha. Very quickly after that, we realized that there was a third list, which included also my name. And what happened is actually probably someone realized that Omarska is already known, they, they saw the footage. So, someone got the idea to leave a group inside in order to keep going on with this uh, idea that this is no concentration camp, it's just a regular investigation center. That's how they called it.
0: While most of the Omarska detainees were transferred to some of the other period concentration camps straight after the journalist's visit, Sadko says he and a group of others were forced to stay behind for another two weeks, cleaning up Omarska and hiding what had been going on there for the past two months. Freedom was a long way off. He remembers being taken to a tiny room along with 173 other detainees where they waited for what was to come next. Then, soon after, Sadko says he and four others were chosen to start the cleaning.
1: We were taken to the White House to clean it. And I remember um, seeing a lot of blood on the walls, seeing the the human hair, pieces of brain, bloody shoes, uh, bloody T-shirts. It was completely empty, but the traces were really uh, of horror. And I even learned later that one of the inmates told me that he also was cleaning the White House uh, a day before me. And he even told me that, what he saw was even worse. And while doing this, my dad was still in the camp outside on this pista, waiting for buses for Ternopole. And um, I saw him, he saw me going to White House. He told me later he was sure they would kill us. Satko says that the guards actually allowed them to speak to each other briefly. And I went to my father and I I remember uh, this feeling of, I, I just felt this whole group in which I, I would be staying, was doomed to be killed and and, and I really felt a lot of fear and, and I, I, but at the same time I couldn't say it to him. I didn't want to to, to say it to my dad this way, but I remember I took my, a necklace. My parents gave me a necklace for my 18th birthday. I was taking my necklace off my neck and pulling it up and I was thinking I should give it to him. And I said, dad, take you you should take this now. And somewhere half away, I again got this crazy hope, which I had several times in the camp, also on the day when I was very sick. And I simply said to myself, no, no. And I put it back and I looked at him and I said, no, listen, I'll take it out myself. And he, he smiled at me, he hugged me and we said goodbye.
0: Sadko remembers being put back in that small room after returning from the White House with the noise of the pandemonium of thousands of detainees being transported to the other camps, brewing outside for hours.
1: And at some point in time, I think, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock, it was just silent. There was nothing anymore. It was a very surrealistic scene, I must say. Imagine the group of 2,000, over 2,000 people all around the space, all this noise, guards yelling, sometimes beating people going inside the buses and then the group of 170 squeezed like sardines standing inside and then outside it's all silence. And we are silent too. And that night Satko says a truck arrived, loaded with hundreds
0: of beds, which he and the other men were told to put together. No one explained why to them, but they did it anyway. They started at 1am and it took them all night.
1: But at five, when we finished, I was completely exhausted. It was seven in the morning that one of the guards get in and, and he said that when we finished, we had to sit on the floor. We were not allowed to lie on these same beds, which we just fixed. Um, and, and this was really, uh, I don't know, I remember this small moment of sadism that even, even having the, the real bed, we were not allowed to use them.
0: Then, Sátko told me about a moment that made me think back to my conversation with Kenneth Morrison, who explained the process of Serb leaders whipping up fear and hate against the non-Serbs. And the moment was when
1: Sátko realized the level of his own dehumanization. So, we were sitting there until 7 in the morning, the new shift came, we were taken out, and I will, again, I will never forget the words of the chief of shift, who said, good morning people, the Brøtre Ludi. Because for all this period, I never felt that we were treated as humans. We were so psychologically drilled that we got into this role of, of camp prisoners. We, we got the feeling we are not worth uh, living. We are not worth being called humans and so on. And so I, I remember this surprise at the same time also, um, realising that I I am human and I am normal. What Sadko remembered was the head of the shift telling them
0: that later that day, the International Red Cross would visit Omarska along with international journalists and that the men were not to mention how life in Omarska was, only to speak about the conditions now, when they had beds and when they were apparently going to be given extra food and also to say that they had only been in the camp for 15 days not two months. That's when Sadko says he realised that the entire group, which was kept behind, was meant to help create this new narrative of Omarska to fit in with the claims Karadzic and the other Bosnian Serb leaders were making about the camps all throughout the summer. And Sadko remembers journalists coming to the camp daily from then on. Sometimes several news crews a day, some of them French, some of them German, and some Serbian the detainee's instructions were always the same, to lie. Sometimes Satko went along with it to protect himself, but other times, when he felt it was safe, he would tell the truth because he couldn't bear pretending anymore. That August, while Satko was living out this fake narrative in front of the world's cameras, and while many of the other male detainees were still in Trenopoli and the other camp, Manacca, most of the women were released. Azra Blažević the doctor, says she was the only woman left in Tarnopolje at this point. And her being there didn't really fit the Serbs' narrative of it being a camp for prisoners of war. So they just put her on a convoy of women, children and the elderly. They were driven close to the nearest free territory and then they all had to walk to the Croatian border. Later, she went to Germany as a refugee and finally to St. Louis, Missouri where she still lives today. For Nusrita, the judge, it was similar. She was released from Ternopoli a few days after she was taken there from Omarska. And first, she went back to Priedor.
3: I didn't go to my flat because a Serb colleague of mine from
0: work was living in it. It turns out this was actually quite common. Some Serbs who stayed behind in Priedor just moved into the homes of the Muslims and Croats that were deported, killed or detained. Nusrta had to put up a long fight to get hers back. So she stayed with her cousin first, every day trying to figure out a way to get out of Priyadur. I lost my job, flat and a
3: masker. There was nothing left for me there.
0: She managed to get to free territory in Croatia a couple months later, but then, down the line, she returned back home. These days, she's still in Predor. And Fikret, well, he also left Ternopolia with one of the convoys of women and children in August. From what he told me, it sounded like he was taking a huge risk.
4: I didn't have a choice anymore it was to die or to leave.
5: I dressed like a woman and I boarded a bus. Whatever happens, happens. They were driving
4: us the whole day in those buses. They kept stopping us at a number of places. They killed and raped women. At a place before Korachanska Stiene, they called for girls or women to be taken to be raped. Since I was dressed like a woman, they took me out as they took us uphill, women and girls. They said that I had a stench and that I should be taken back to the bus. I was lucky that they took me back to the bus. We went to Vlasic and then walked.
5: I'm not sure for how long.
4: In Turbe, some buses took us to a school in Travnik. I remember that I had some water. And then I woke up on the 24th of August in a hospital.
0: Just three days before Fikret got to free territory, Satko found out that he and the last group of men at Omerska were finally going to be leaving. But only to that other camp, Manjača. They heard the news on the 21st of August. This very day, the camp was basically closed. Maniča was still a concentration camp where, during the summer, conditions were also awful. Detainees were tortured and killed there too. But Satko says that by the end of August, the Red Cross and the UN were keeping an eye on Maniča, which meant the conditions there were much better.
5: So how long were you actually in Maniča before you left Bosnia?
0: My producer Jake was there in the interview with Satko with me.
1: Actually, in total, together with Tomarska, I was detained exactly 200 days. So 84 in Omarska and 116 in Manacad.
0: Satko, along with most of the Manacad detainees, was only released in mid-December 1992. But they weren't just let go, they were deported out of Bosnia to Croatia.
1: It took hours to get there, while in normal circumstances it would take you maybe two hours maximum. But it was a long, big convoy, passing through Banya Luka, passing through some villages, some towns, people on the streets yelling at us, screaming, go away Ustashas, go away Turks, uh, cursing, throwing stones. I remember thinking, how come they have so much hatred? How, how come I am being treated this way? You know, it, it, it was not any more guards, it was not any more these bad guys. You know, it was regular people on the streets.
0: Satko says that it was clear to him as he was leaving Bosnia that he couldn't stay there. His hometown Kozarats was burnt to the ground and so many of his fellow Bosnians simply didn't want him there anymore. So he went to the Netherlands as a refugee and set out
1: to start his life there. I really tried to build up my life to do something. I learned Dutch quite quickly. I was playing basketball, I I found some friends, I, I got a girlfriend, a Dutch girl, but inside I was really broken and I was completely traumatized. I could not be happy for years. I could not dance, I could not sing, I could not laugh really as people usually laugh.
2: A lot of the Omaska survivors are truckers. Why do you think that is? I find that really interesting. Because they drive long, long distances at night by themselves. They don't have to talk to anybody. I think, I mean, you know, the premise is that, you know, genocide and war is not like a football match. It doesn't end when the whistle blows. It never goes away.
0: It was the same for my family. We fled Sarajevo early on. And despite that, the war stayed with us. The constant footage of fighting on TV, of our city being destroyed, and the knowledge that our friends and family stayed behind meant that it was always on our minds.
6: The war, it's one thing. The post-war life is another. And uh, especially for people who are displaced, especially people who start their life somewhere else, but I don't think we ever find home again.
0: What was it like following the rest of the war from afar? That's also a
6: very difficult, emotionally difficult situation. You try to live your life. You try to build a life for you and your children, that at least you give them a chance to to live somewhat normal life. But at the same time, every single day is impacted by what you went through and what's still happening in a country that you uh, came from. Our day was revolving around news. When my son was starting school, I remember need to go and talk to his teacher and tell them, uh, he might talk about some weird stuff. Maybe he might talk about killings. It's not that we are weird people who don't care what kids are listening to or that we don't know that we shouldn't talk about it in front of kids, but that's what our life was about in the past four or five years.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I also, obviously, I wasn't in a camp, but we were in Sarajevo for a while, and obviously it was always on the news, and my parents were always listening and watching, and I think I said something to another kid when I was about six about playing soldiers and, you know, I said the word killing, and then the English person's mother got really, like, angry, and she was like, we don't say that in this country, and my mum kind of had to be like you know, sorry, sorry, not meaning anything bad, but it just being part of your reality and being in a society where it's not the reality. The camps had cast long shadows over all the survivors' lives. All of them spoke about ways that those few summer months had altered the course of everything that came after. For Satko, the most difficult years were his first in the Netherlands. It was 1993. He was just 21.
1: I was in the age when you should actually enjoy life, you should study, you should have fun. And I was sitting there in a refugee camp, you know, actually thinking of suicide and, and needing psychological, even psychiatric help to, to get up. In September that year, I got my first job, uh, but I had to move to the refugee center. In October, I already was thinking really again to commit suicide. and And I, looking back, I think the, Main reason why I didn't jump, I saw myself like coming over the open window and hanging on it and then letting go. That was kind of idea I saw all the time. I was listening to Depeche Mode. I was maybe having one or two beers. I was really kind of gone, you know? And I remember very clearly I was just about to do it and then something in me told me, but what if you're hanging and you change your mind? You cannot pull up back anymore because my body is too heavy for my muscles, for my arms. And then maybe I don't want to do it and I will die while I, I don't want to do it. I must say, uh, looking back, it it disturbed my life completely. I even believed that uh, certain decisions I made in my life including divorce, now I'm happy married with another woman, but uh, the mother of my Children I, I left in 2014, of course, it was not a sudden decision. It, it took years and maybe it would happen anyway. I don't know, but I, at least looking back, I, I I do see that some things I did are directly related to trauma and to post-traumatic stress syndrome and to Marska influencing my my behavior, my attitude. I never spoke about it so often because everything which happened in '92 is much worse. So many people killed, so many, so many people tortured, but just looking back and realizing that I didn't have a twenties as, as I should have. I was dealing with my own traumas. I used to live with a girlfriend whom I didn't love actually, just to be with someone I, I could not stay alone. So many choices, so many things happened because of this. Basically, my whole life was upside down, in a way. After a quick break,
0: following on from research that my producer Jake Atayevich did, I tried to figure out whether the British government knew about the existence of the of concentration camps before they were discovered. On the topic of who knew what about the camps, Ed Vuliami told us that he thinks that...
2: There's no reason that one power knew another didn't know under the sharing of intelligence. I mean, you know, everybody knew along the corridors of power.
0: In other words, if the Americans knew and the UN knew, how could the British not know? So we wanted to test that idea. Because remember, the British government were one of the leading European voices when it came to influencing the international response to Bosnia. Their inactions about the camps would have been loaded, if they actually did know about them. And so my producer, Jake, did some research. Now to be clear, before I get into it, we didn't find a smoking gun. The two pieces of information we found are circumstantial at best. So first we looked into documents freely available in the National Archives, after a Freedom of Information request to the Foreign Office got us nothing. And in one of the documents, there's a memo from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees dated the 6th of August, 1992. The day when the world's eyes focused on Priyadur after Ed, Penny and Ian's reporting came out. The memo says that on the 3rd of July, 1992, the UNHCR shared reports of the concentration camps with the International Committee on the Red Cross. This was known and reported on at the time. But the other thing that the memo states is that these reports were also shared with the European Community Monitoring Mission. According to the NATO website, the mission had been described as, quote, the eyes and ears of the EU in the Balkans. And one of the 15 participating countries in the mission was the United Kingdom. So, as I said, a circumstantial indication, but it might raise the question, wouldn't have this information filtered upwards from the UK representative in the mission to the government. The other piece of information is an interview with a woman called Lady Miloška Knott, published in The Observer on the 9th of August, 1992. She is, and was at the time, the wife of a former Conservative Secretary of State for Defence. But more importantly, she's a Slovenian-born humanitarian who, throughout the Bosnian War, traveled there several times to deliver food and medicine. In this interview from early August 1992, she says, quote, I knew there were concentration camps one and a half months ago. I didn't want to go public because it was so important. The best thing to do was to go to the foreign secretary. I asked to see Mr. Hurd because he was an old colleague of my husband. The article also says that Lady Not claimed to have heard stories of the camps from Muslim refugees directly but her request to meet with the foreign secretary about the camps was rejected. Now, it's hard to confirm that Douglas Hurd found out about the camps as a result of Lady Miloshka Knox's attempts to speak to him. Neither of these two pieces of information definitively tipped the scales. But if nothing else, they seem to circumstantially support the view that some British officials could have been aware of the existence of the camps in at least July 92. And if that was the case, that knowledge was either not shared upwards or it just wasn't acted on. We reached out to the foreign office twice to talk about what we found, but we heard nothing back. It seems that there is this battle of narratives wherever you look in the case of Priyadur. Well, I guess in all of Bosnia. Between the perpetrators and the survivors.
5: Each side had its own story and unfortunately there is no any uh, reconciliation and nobody in my case nobody told me hey i'm sorry that you went through this and uh, this really happened and
1: that's what hurts
0: Mirsad moved to chicago with his parents straight after the camps both of his brothers were killed during the war these days he only goes back to priedur to honor their memory and the memory of others who were killed there but he and his family seem completely settled in the u.s Azra blazevic doesn't long to go back either for a very specific reason.
6: I fully understand that it would be insane to expect uh, people who were Serbs or were part of the military forces or whatever to play heroes, to lose their lives because they were threatened too. I mean, we had some heroic acts of people from Kozarats who were Serbs who, who, who didn't want to fight that war. We had them and they usually ended up badly. I cannot understand that none of them, so many years after the war, now when it is safe, even in a casual way, not even saying, I feel sorry for what I did, but I feel bad for what was done to you guys or what happened. And maybe that's also a part why I don't like to go to Creator.
0: Every one of the survivors said some version of this to me. It seems that. For many Serbs in Prydor, there's a lack of even just basic acknowledgement of what was done to non-Serbs, even today. Some might call that lack of closure for the survivors, but Ed Ruliami thinks it's about something very different.
2: If you are raped all night, every night by soldiers for a number of months, and your family are butchered and your house is burned, you don't have closure. Uh, You never will. But you can have reckoning. And that depends on A, the perpetrators admitting what they did. It also involves society at large making it unacceptable to deny or denigrate what happened to you.
0: And a huge part of the survivor's quest for reckoning has been memorialising the camps, something that might seem like it shouldn't be difficult, like it would be the natural thing to do. But to this day, there hasn't been a single memorial put up to commemorate the victims of the Priyadur camps or to acknowledge the tragedies that took place there. Ed focused on this a lot in his reporting after the war. So we wondered why he thought memorialization was so important. We
2: erect monuments. You know, we've been doing it ever since the Stone Age. You know, we have stones with names on it. We ritualize our dead.
0: Uh, it's crucial to our existence to do this. One of the main issues when it comes to memorialising Omarska is that it's now back to being a functioning mine belonging to a company called Arcelor Mittal, owned by the UK-based billionaire Lakshmi Mittal. It's the company that built that strange red twisting statue in the London Olympic Park. He came up with
2: a very fancy piece of sculpture for the London Olympics, but he couldn't seem to manage even so much as a slab of marble in his own mind. We need these things. The way the Germans have made physical their reckoning with... The Holocaust Monument in Berlin with the endless museums in the camps, you know, is a way of doing it. It's a way of saying, for whatever of a better way of putting it, we're sorry. and We know we did this. We owe, we owe this to you. We'll give you the history.
0: One of the survivors who tried to get an Omarska memorial built was actually Satko. In his view, the current Priedor municipality, led by a Bosnian-Serb mayor, had been as big of an obstacle as Acerol Mittel. For
1: example, in 2005... Mittal actually announced that White House will become a memorial omarska and will be separated from the company, basically, from the uh, production. And this was the moment when municipality and the former mayor, Mr. Pavic, publicly said, uh, no go, we will never allow it.
0: But Satko says that later, in 2013, the mayor gave into pressure from the survivors and the EU and said that he wouldn't oppose moral memorial anymore. Only since then, no progress has been made. Mirsad Czaošević is also currently trying to fund and build a memorial. Both of them believe that one day it will happen. What's
2: happened to the Bosnian survivors is that they have made their own monuments by rebuilding their houses.
1: I had my foundation for six years, Optimisti 2004, with which we gathered a lot of money to to bring uh, life back to Kozarats, to rebuild the the sports fields, the gym hall. Everybody was building their own homes, and we were trying to fix things around it. So this was also something which was actually therapeutical in a way. We cannot bring back those who who were killed, but we can help those who survived.
2: Kozarats, you know, around the time of the annual commemoration, which is a very solemn event, uh, is otherwise kind of party town now, because it's where the children of the diaspora, most of whom weren't born when this happened, or they were very little when they left, when their parents survived. Uh, They all go back and meet up with each other. They're kind of deprived of any physical acknowledgement of what happened by the authorities. So they do it with bricks and mortar and plumbing and parties. It's very moving.
0: Sadko, Azra and Mirsad all stayed in the countries where they first went as refugees after the camps but Fikret and Nusrita both decided to come back home. Fikret did first live in Denmark for a few years, but decided to return later on.
4: When I went to Denmark, I went because I had to. I went for medical treatment. My wish was always Bosnia, and it remained in my heart because this is where I was born and planned to stay, God willing, until my death. My country is my country. Wherever I go, I'm only a number. But here, I am Fikret Alic.
0: Despite his love for Bosnia, being back hasn't been easy. In
4: some sense, I regret returning from Denmark. I thought that it would be better here, but the situation here is catastrophic. It's a situation where another war is waited upon on a daily basis. I can't understand people. After everything, instead of extending our hands to look towards a better future, our politicians, I believe that they are spreading hatred and we don't need it.
0: And for Nusrita and all the survivors who return, The ghosts of the camps aren't just emotional or psychological. They literally walk the streets. How often do you see the guards from Omarska in Priador?
7: Since I've been
3: living in Priador, I've seen them often. People who were part of the concentration camp structure or those that have been convicted and were released after serving two thirds of their sentence. I have encountered this one man lately. He wanted to talk to me. He even suggested for us to sit somewhere, but I didn't accept it at the moment. So I don't know. One gets used to it. At the beginning, it was a bit unusual to meet them. But later on, it isn't even weird. Nothing is weird because those people are embraced here as heroes, as those who did the right thing and were on the right side.
0: That last point of Nusritas is something that we spoke about even in series one of Untold Killing, Denial.
2: I mean, one of the themes of all this is they can't make up their minds whether what they did was necessary and justifiable or didn't happen and was a media uh, fabrication. You know, I mean, it's sort of, are they crazy or pretending to be crazy? And I still can't answer that question.
0: One of the most high-profile pieces of denial around the Pledur camps have been claims that the reporting of Trenopoli and Omerska was faked. They were printed in a British magazine called Living Marxism just a few years after the war in the late 90s.
2: They used exactly the same techniques as the Holocaust revisionists. They were brick couldn't take that kind of thermal capacity that, to kill that number of people in an oven in Auschwitz. You know, He's not arguing about six million, he's arguing about a brick. They did exactly the same with the barbed wire fence. It was attached to the other side of the pole. They suggest that
0: we'd fabricated the whole thing. The conspiracy theory was that the footage from Ternopoli was staged and that the men weren't actually detainees, that they were just standing behind a fence. And that the impression that they were imprisoned was created through editing and camera angles. Fikrit Alic has been especially frustrated by these conspiracies. He was the man in the images. The barbed wire that was meant to be fake was the barbed wire that separated him from freedom. And he told me that one time he heard about a press conference going on in London where the people supporting the conspiracy theory were presenting it to the media.
5: Uh, Hamburg was some CEO. I
4: boarded a train that was going to London. I arrived in London and was able to be directly at the conference and listen to the man, who I considered inhuman. I listened to him for about five minutes. I was sweating from how much the man lied that we were not in concentration camps and that it didn't happen.
0: And then, he says, he'd had enough.
4: I said, people, enough. I raised my passport and my photo and said, I'm alive. I am that man from that photo. He went silent. There was a minute of silence in the hall. All of the TV stations that were there turned towards me and spoke to me. No one listened to him anymore. At the end, he stood up and came towards me. His hands were shaking when he greeted me and said, I'm sorry, Fikret. I didn't believe that it
1: happened but now I do.
5: You are alive."
1: Their official policy, not only in the Republic of Srpska, even in Serbia, even the president of Serbia, Vucic, and and, and Dodik in Bosnia are publicly denying genocide in Srebrenica, which is the only genocide even proven at the court, let alone that they, they acknowledge genocide in other parts of Bosnia or even severe war crimes or crimes against humanity whatsoever. So, There are not many places which are commemorated one way or the other in the Republic of Srpska because of this official policy of denial. We even call it the eighth phase of genocide, denial of genocide. And now we are even in the ninth phase, glorification of genocide, because not that they are not acknowledging genocide and war crimes, they are glorifying those who committed. The war criminals like Ratko Mladic and Radovan Karadzic and others.
5: All of this reminds me of something you you touched on a little bit earlier. It was the idea of who owns this narrative of what happened.
2: Who do you think is winning that struggle? I think at the moment it's a rather dirty score draw. I mean, in Bosnia itself, the perpetrators are winning that struggle. I mean, the the, the lack of reckoning, the extent of the denial, particularly of the camps and Srebrenica, but also all the pogroms in all the other places, it's basically... It, it's as though it never happened. So, the survivors are either living abroad or they've gone back, and their voice is very, very hard to raise. Who do you think is winning this battle of narratives?
1: I think the truth will win, as truth always wins. If you look at um, period of slavery, millions of people who were forcibly moved and killed, and, and, and tortured and detained. We all knew about it. When I grew up, I, I knew about it, but we never really, really as a humanity, as a society did anything with that. And look what happened in just the previous years with these statues in the US. The name of the most known Dutch explorers are moved as we speak from the street names. So uh, I think what we need is, is a, a time of peace, long enough time of peace, which we still don't have. And we need a new generation to really stand up. I believe it would be impossible at some point to go on on this uh, narrative of of lies and of propaganda and of denial.
5: You really are an optimist.
1: Yes, I am. That's why I survived.
0: Nusrita told me that her way of surviving Omarska was to always look forward. After the war ended, you decided to testify about sexual violence that you survived in Omarska. Why was it important for you to talk about it? In my clear moments in Amaska,
3: I swore to myself. I made a vow and gave myself this task. I let myself daydream about it. At the time, in the hell of Amaska, it was the only thing that I could think about. The minute I had the opportunity after I made it to free territory, I started to talk about everything that happened in the Amaska concentration camp, hoping that it will be heard. I was able to make my first contact with the tribunal while at the refugee centre. Later on, I was even happier that I was able to contribute to rape being treated as a war crime before the international court and the tribunal. And so, for the first time in the history of international law, rape is treated as a war crime.
0: But while she seems to have got at least some satisfaction out of testifying against the perpetrators at the tribunal, she understands that not all the survivors felt entirely positive about the work of the ICTY.
3: Perhaps the biggest disappointment that survivors and individuals have, who went through the process of testifying and who have contributed is related to the conviction politics of the tribunal, that the sentences they received are too low.
0: And another disappointment Nusrita mentioned to me was the ICTY ruling that the sum of everything that Republika Srpska did in Prijedor, the ethnic cleansing, the executions and the camps, wasn't ruled to be genocide. We asked Ed about this as well.
2: Srebrenica was Genocide. And it's important that the Hague ruled that. But if we're going to use the Hague's judgments as yardsticks, we have to be consistent. And if what happened in Prijadov is not genocide, then I don't know what genocide is. And the same goes for Vlasenica, Visegrad, Foča, Bjelnija, Brčka, I mean, how long have you got? It sounds like a shopping list, it's not. These are all places that had half or majority Muslim populations, from which the Muslims and the Croats were killed or deported, and all their religious artifacts and monuments and mosques and churches blown up. They tick all the boxes of genocide. And I think the final insult to these good people is to tell them from the bench, you know, of your fat salaried, you know, judicial perch on high, that what happened to you was not genocide. I mean, it's spitting in their faces, isn't it?
0: Many survivors are still searching for their loved ones in mass graves to this day. More than 500 are still missing. Satko says that his grandmother, who, if you remember, he said goodbye to as his family were fleeing to the woods during the attack on Kozolac, is the oldest missing person in the area. In total, 3,172 people were killed. 102 of them were children. In this second series of Untold Killing, I knew how tough my conversations with the survivors would be, but it was really important for me to go deep into their stories anyway, both because I think it's crucial for all of us to understand that something like this can happen right here, where we don't think of this kind of violence as even a remote possibility, but also because my own family has a connection to the dark history of Kwasara. You see, back in World War II, my grandmother was one of the Bosnian Serbs who were put in a concentration camp by the old Croat Nazi regime. You might remember this history being mentioned a few times earlier in the series. This was the brutal past that the Bosnian Serb politicians were using to justify their own violence against non-Serbs in the early 90s. And to me, it's a perfect example of history repeating itself, of how we can seemingly never learn from our mistakes and get to almost the same situation only reversed less than 50 years later. I am proud Bosnian and I really do think that we have the capacity to move forward. But only if we try to do what I've attempted in this podcast, having an honest conversation with ourselves and each other about our own past no matter our identity or religion. But that's easier said than done, and we have to face the uncomfortable reality of the political situation in Bosnia today. 30 years after the Dayton peace agreement, there is still a fracture between all sides, each with their own interests. And unless that fracture is mended on the highest levels, I don't know how much we can expect to change. Wrapping my head around my own takeaways from the story of Priyadur, I found it fascinating how the people in the story choose to finish telling it. One of the big themes of Ed Vuliami's book about the Priyadur camps, the war is dead, long live the war, is this idea of irresolution. And what he means by that is all the things we talked about to the survivors in this episode. The denial, the lack of a genocide ruling, or the way their lives are forever affected by the war. But Ed also speaks about it in another larger way, more societal. How do we resolve these events as a humanity?
2: In the 1970s, there was a slogan of the Anti-Nazi League that I was involved in, never again. And I think in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, you know, in, which was my childhood, I was born in 54, You know, it seemed possible that you know maybe this wouldn't happen again, but of course that was a that was a delusion. It will happen over and over and over again, and it is happening in Syria. Um, it is happening in a different way in Mexico and Colombia. Uh, it is happening um, in Myanmar, and it's happening again in a different sort of way. But, but attrition in Iraq, it will happen over and over again. And Bosnia gave the lie to any idea that Europe is in some way apart from the the fact that it will happen over and over and over again, and it could happen tomorrow anywhere, including Europe.
0: I don't know if the survivors I've had the chance to speak to in this series of untold killing genuinely believe in the hope of never again, whether they think that the situation in Bosnia will change for the better, that the days of peaceful coexistence of Bosniaks, Serbs and Croats will return. Some, like Satko, seem hopeful, others seem sceptical, but Nusrta, she just sounds tired of it all. How would you compare your life now with your life before the war? However many flaws
3: the system had, the political system, everything was better compared to how it is now. The current situation seems worse than it was right after the war. It's terrible to live in Bosnia now. In my opinion, we're in a state of uncertainty. It seems to me that peace has never been so shaken as it is now. It's terrible and it's exhausting. The political scene is exhausting people, it's debilitating, it's creating an atmosphere of uncertainty and fear. I'm not sure how all of this will end. What worries me the most is that young people have given up on their fight for Bosnia. They found their resistance by leaving this country looking for a safer place. I am extremely worried and I'm not sure where all of this is going and how it will all end.
0: Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Let me
3: just add, some politicians haven't given up on the goals from the war. They haven't learned from what had happened. I don't have anything else to add.
7: <laughs>
0: Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written and produced by Jake Otayevich. Thank you to Elmina Kulesic, Kate Williams, and Amram Wykanovic from Remembering Srebrenica for helping put this series together. Thank you also to Susie Cleverly for being the voice of Nusrta Sivac, and to Dan Damon, who is the voice of Fikret Alic. A special thanks to the Bosnian-American Genocide Institute and Education Centre for their partnership and support in fundraising, as well as Ayla Delkic. And of course, the biggest thank you of all goes to all the survivors who went back into their painful memories to keep their stories alive. Editing, mixing and sound design by Rowan Bishop Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Matt Huxley. My name is Alexandra Bilic. Thank you for listening.